Here we'll take verse 14 as our text. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John chapter 3, our Lord is interacting with Nicodemus concerning the new birth. The teacher of Israel is perplexed. And so our Lord says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Nicodemus, if I tell you about things that happen on the earth and you do not understand and believe, then how can you understand and believe that which is from heaven? Jesus Christ then proceeds to tell Nicodemus that which is from heaven. Jesus has come down from heaven to die for sinners. For he says in verse 13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. As our Lord here cites Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, we see Jehovah in the Old Testament punishing his people for their sins. He sends fiery serpents to bite, poison, and bring death to rebellious sinners. And there he shows mercy. And he says, build a brazen serpent, lift it up high on a pole, and all who are bitten, when they look to that serpent, they shall be healed and live. And so Jesus Christ is saying that Numbers 21 is a figure of sin and salvation. And that the brazen serpent lifted up is a type of his person and work. So let us use John chapter 3 as our interpretive tool so that we can lift up Jesus Christ as the brazen serpent and prepare for the Lord's Supper. And if you turn to Numbers chapter 21, we will consider the passage under three headings. One, the venom sends poison. Two, the cure Christ lifted up. Three, the healing, the look of life. So first of all, the venom sends poison. In Numbers 21, there's a great sin in Israel. This great sin is the sin of mummering. As it says here in verse 5, the people speak against God and against Moses. The sin of mummering is to complain and grumble against God explicitly or implicitly 
because of your present circumstances. And the heart of the sin of murmuring is unbelief. In Psalm 106, 24 to 25, it says, They despise the pleasant land. They believe not his word, but murmured in their tents. And for this reason, Thomas Watson says, Murmuring is the daughter of unbelief. Things are not going your way. Life is not exactly how you would plan it. And therefore you complain and grumble. And as you do this, it is unbelief. You don't believe in God's sovereignty. You don't believe in God's wisdom. You don't believe in God's goodness. And therefore you murmur against him. And when we commit this sin, we are committing a violation of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And you remember from our exposition, uh, was it last year? Lord's name is not simply his name, but his being and his works, his ordinances. And so when God has given us a providence and we're murmuring, complaining and grumbling about it, it is the sin of unbelief. And it has taken the name of the Lord God in vain. This is why in the exposition of this commandment, in the larger catechism 113, it says, how do we break the third commandment? Murmuring and quarreling at God's providences. And this is an evil sin. An evil sin. In Numbers 14, 27 God bewails his people. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? What makes this congregation evil? Which murmur against me. So we don't think it's that bad, do we? To have a complaining, complaining, grumbling spirit. It's not that bad. You think there's other things more grievous where God says it's evil. And when there's an individual or a church or a nation that's murmuring, complaining and grumbling against God's providences, it is evil in the sight of God. And no doubt every single one of us are guilty of this sin. What one of us among us can say, we have been perfectly sinlessly, blamelessly, content and thankful for all that's ever happened in our lives. And we've never complained. We've never grumbled about it. I cannot say that. And if you're honest, you cannot say that. And here in Numbers 21, this sin of murmuring is illustrated from Israel in three ways. First of all, murmuring against his mercy. Verses 1 to 3. Israel has enemies. There's war. They are to go into the land and to defeat kings and peoples. They send spies into the land, verse 1, but it doesn't go their way. 
King Arad, the Canaanite, imprisons them. So Israel consecrate themselves to seek the Lord, and they go to the Lord, and they pray to God, God, deliver us of our enemies. Come in your presence and power and conquer this people. And God's merciful. He answers their prayer. He comes down and in verse 3, the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them and their cities and he called the name of the place Hormah. God's merciful, God's powerful, God's blessing them. And it's in the midst of mercy and victory that they complain. How many of us have done this? When we've prayed to God and he's answering our prayers. When he showered us with good things and blessings. And even in the midst of these, we complain and moan. Secondly, Israel murmurs against God's will. Verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Now in chapter 20, verses 23 to 24, God says to Israel, when you go to the the land of Edom, do not cross through it. Because what Israel have done in the past, you are not to take the easy route, the quick route, You are to go around the land of Edom, but you're not allowed to go through it. My will for you is to go to Mount Hor, around Edom, not through it. And they don't like God's will. Verse 4 says that their soul was discouraged. Discouraged is actually a very weak translation of what it's trying to convey. They were grieved. They were vexed. They were annoyed. They were angry at God's will. They didn't want to go around. They wanted to go straight through. How often have we done this? God's will through his word. God's will says do this and do not do that. And our soul was vexed and grieved And we were angry at God because we didn't want to do what he's revealed in his will. Or providentially. God revealed his will in providence to you. And you don't like it. You're grieved by it. You're angry by it. You want God's providential will to be this, that or the other. But he doesn't. He gives you something else. And you mumble, complain, and grumble. Thirdly, murmuring against God's provisions. Verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, and there is no water, and our soul loveth. This light bread. That's not true. There is bread and there is water, 
and God has provided it. You'll remember in Exodus chapter 16, another episode where Israel murmured. And God was gracious to them. He came to them and says, I'm going to give you angels' food. I'm going to provide you manna from heaven. Every day you'll have plenty of bread to eat. And on the, um, and on the, uh, uh, on the, the day before you'll have a double amount so you can keep the Sabbath. But you will have plenty of bread every day. Then in Exodus 17, another time when they murmured, God is again gracious and long-suffering and he provides miraculously water from the rock. And yet it says here, our soul loatheth this light bread. To loathe means to abhor. Literally it means to be sickened in your stomach. Light means something contemptible and worthless. So though God has provided for their needs, it's not enough. They don't like it. It's sickening to them. They don't want to eat this manna from bread every day. They don't want to drink from the rock every day. They want this. They want that. They want another thing. So they murmur and complain and speak against God. And how often have we committed this sin? God has provided this good thing for you. God has provided that good thing for you. But it's not enough. Our souls are sickened by it. We don't want this. We want that. So we complain and murmur against God. And don't, don't miss the spiritual significance of verse 5. Though these are temporal things, they speak of eternal things. What did the bread from heaven signify? Jesus Christ, John chapter 6, He is the bread of life which comes down from heaven. The water from a rock, 1 Corinthians 10, it is Christ. And how often have we been guilty of murmuring despite every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Is He not enough? Is he not sufficient for us? Is he not worthy of suffering and lack and imprisonment and stripes and bondage? Do do we not read Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, I count all things but done for the excellency of the knowledge of my Lord. Does Paul not say he would go through anything for Christ's sake? And yet we mump and moan at providence. And yet we're rich in Jesus Christ. This is our sin. Every one of us have committed the sin and the evil of murmuring. I have and you have too. And how does the Lord respond to the sin? Verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people And much people of Israel died. The word fiery simply means burning with a great heat. The Hebrew word is seraph, which is the same word for Isaiah 6-2, where the seraphims are flying in six wings. 
But I don't think they are miraculous creatures because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15, when God is describing the natural landscape of the wilderness, he mentions many things that are there, including fiery serpents. So they're ordinary creatures. But God in his protection has made sure that these venomous snakes do not bite the people of Israel. But since they've murmured against him, he now supernaturally sends these fiery serpents, these venomous burning serpents to bite, poison and bring death as a judgment to Israel. Now why? Why did God send fiery snakes to poison and kill Israelites? Well, God's not arbitrary. He doesn't have a list of punishments and he just plucks one at random. He does everything for a reason. And there's two reasons why he brings fiery serpents to Israel. The first reason is to illustrate the nature of sin. What is the sin of Israel? Speaking with their mouths against God. In the Bible, the sins of the tongue are likened to venomous, poisonous snakes. Psalm 58 verse 4, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. serpent. Psalm 140 verse 3. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. And Paul uses that in Romans 3.13 to show sin. And so because the sin of the tongue is like the venom or poison of a snake, God sends venomous snakes to bite, poison, and kill Israel. And that is our sin after all. Our problem is not theologically that the old serpent has bitten us in the original sin, But we are the venom. We are the poison. We are snakes. Because sin is not merely what you do. It's what you are. Being children of Adam since the fall, sin is at the very source of our soul. Just like when a snake bites a human being, the toxins of the venom go to the... the, 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 Go to the cells and either disable, kill, or destroy the cells. Sin has come to our soul and it is poison everywhere. Poison of the tongue, murmuring and speaking against God. Poison with the tongue, speaking against each other. Poison with the tongue of murder, raka, and mockery. Poison with the eyes that we see. Poison with the things we touch. Poison with the lust of the world. Poison against each other. This world is poisoned. And the problem is us. 
Do you know that? Do you think the problem of the world is out there? Do you think the sin of the world is out there? It's you, 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 and me. We are venom, we are poisonous, we are snakes because of sin. And the second reason why he sends fiery serpents is because they're a symbol of his furious wrath against sin. Deuteronomy 32:24, when he's going to curse people, it says, Devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction, I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents of the dust. When I'm angry and furious, I will send snakes to bite and poison. Jeremiah 8:17. Behold, I will send serpents and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. And so it's a picture of his furious wrath against our sin. And it begins in this world. Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God, presence participle, is being presently poured out against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. As John chapter 3 verse 18 says, we are condemned already. And then there's death. As the poison comes to Israel and there's death, so there's death in God's wrath. Revelation 20 verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. God's going to pour out his infinite wrath on creatures made in his image forever in hell. Because we've sinned and murmured and quarreled and complained and grumbled against him in so many ways, he will come like fiery snakes upon us. This is the poison of sin. But secondly, the cure Christ lifted up. There's good news in this passage. There's wonderful news. In verse 7, the people realize they can't stop this. They can't do anything about it. They need God. So they come to God, and in verse 8, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And remember, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. John 3, 14 As Moses lifted up that serpent, they looked to it and were healed. So the Son of Man is to be lifted up, and everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So how is Jesus Christ the brazen serpent? How is number 21 foreshadowing Jesus Christ? First of all, Christ 
is God's provision of love. God's under no obligation to heal Israel. None. They've sinned. He's a good, just judge. In Exodus 34, verse 7, he's already revealed that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the fourth and generation. He's under no obligation to heal them. None. But he does. Because of who he is. That same text. Exodus 34 says, The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Isn't that wonderful? We use John 3.16 and cut it out of the rest of the chapter. How does John 3.16 begin? For. And what does the word for mean if we know our language? It's a conjunction. It is describing something that's happened previously. Because. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? Because. God so loved the world. That's what John 3.16 is about. John 3.16 is explaining why God would send Christ to be the brazen serpent for our sins. Because he loved the world. Think about that for a moment. The world there doesn't mean the elect. It means mankind. A world of sin. A world of iniquity, a world of murmuring, a world of complaining, a world of venomous snakes. And God loved that world. Martin Luther in his Heidelberg Disputation, he says, The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. That's phenomenal. Man's love is placed upon something it values or is pleased with. Another man, another woman, a child, or even an inanimate object, like a car or a house or a sport, Something there is attractive. Something there is pleasing. So we love. That's not the love of God. God looks upon things which are very unpleasant, unattractive, ugly, filthy, and disgusting. The world. And he looks at that world of venomous snakes and he loves us with an everlasting love. He loves us with an infinite love. He loves us with an immeasurable, immutable love. And how did he love you? So. For God so loved the world. 
If he merely loved the world, he could have sent many, many good things to us. But he didn't. He so loved the world. This means the supremacy. He could not love more. He couldn't evidence love more. And what is this supremacy? What is this soul? He so loved the world of venomous snakes. He sent his only begotten son. He sent the son of his love. The son who is the brightness of his glory. The express image of his nature. The image of the invisible God. The one who is before his face and delights. He sent the son out of love. And that's what God has done for you, sinner. He so loved you, he sent the Son. But secondly, Christ's humiliation. In verse 9, it says it is a serpent of brass. Now that word brass there is a common word for copper that includes all the alloys of copper, such as copper and tin, which is bronze. So most likely it's a bronze, not a brass serpent. Why bronze? If you remember the Exodus, what did God give Israel? What did God say to Israel? He says, go to your neighbor and borrow gold and silver and take it with you. And Israel had lots and lots and lots of gold and silver. And if we were designing salvation, we would say, we want to highlight the glory of God, therefore go make a golden serpent. But that's not what God says. He says, go make a copper, a bronze serpent. Why? Well, what is copper? Common. Not very beautiful, is it? Doesn't attract you much. This was signifying the humiliation of Jesus Christ. That when he comes to this world to save us, he's not going to be gold and dazzling and sparkling, but his glory is going to be veiled under the state of humiliation. Isaiah 53 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, no comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Just an ordinary man. Common, nothing special. When you looked at Jesus Christ, he just looked ordinary. He wasn't born into a royal family. He was born to a very poor family. He wasn't born in a royal palace. Here is God incarnate. But he was born in a place where there was no room in the inn in a manger. The kings of the world did not come and say, Here is the glory of the Lord. No Herod wanted to slaughter this child. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ created all things. The life and the light of men come from Christ. And then it says he came to his own. 
and his own received him not. When he went to his hometown, they despised him. Who are you? Are you not the son of Mary? Are you not just a poor, common carpenter? Who are you? And the religious men of the day, how did they treat him? The devil. That's what they accused him. Beelzebub. A drunkard. A sinner. A blasphemer. And that was Christ. But don't get wrong here. Jesus Christ was still God and glorious in the flesh. Colossians 1 and 2 is very clear. The God him dwelt in him bodily. He gave nothing up. And Philippians 2, it says, when it says literally he emptied himself, it's metaphorical. Himself, he took no reputation. And he emptied himself by addition, by taking on humanity. He was still omniscient. He was still omnipresent. He was still God. Look at John 3.13. John 3.13 says, the Son of Man which is in heaven. It doesn't say which was, past tense, will be, future tense, but presently, here and now, the Son of Man which is in heaven. That's because the one person, two natures. And his divine nature is omnipresent. And his human nature is finite and local. But the person, omnipresent. That's why we have to be careful with heresies. There's a heresy called the canotic theology. Which means Christ emptied himself of all his divinity and was just a man on earth. That is heresy and damnation. And yet it's in popular songs. For example, one of the most famous hymns out there, Charles Wesley, and can it be, it pertains to a heresy. Because in that hymn it says, he emptied himself of all but love. That's wrong. He didn't. He didn't. That's the difference between singing the words of man and the words of God. And so Jesus Christ still possessed all the glory, but veiled under the state of humiliation. Common, nothing special to look upon, so that he would truly be a man and suffer for sin. Which leads us thirdly, Christ the serpent. Now why is Christ compared to a brazen serpent We need to be delivered from serpents by a serpent. We are to be delivered by a serpent for serpents. Now how is this? First of all, likeness. What did God not do? God did not take one of these venomous snakes and put it on a pole and then you look to that venomous snake. That's not what he did. He made a likeness of the snake. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So, Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not have sinful flesh. He came in the likeness 
of sinful flesh. Sinful flesh is the reason why we're condemned under God. Now the brazen serpent is the likeness of the serpent and Jesus Christ is the likeness of sinful flesh to deliver us from our sinful flesh. Secondly, the serpent represents sin itself. Israel sinned and God sent the serpents against sin. And as we've already quoted, serpents are symbols of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin for us. It doesn't mean that he was intrinsically, subjectively a sinner, but that all the guilt, all the sin of God's people were placed upon him, so Jesus Christ before the sight of God the Father is sin. Think about that. Jesus Christ is Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is a Lord of hosts becomes sin on our behalf. Jesus Christ was not only someone who did not sin, but he was impeccable. Jesus Christ could not sin. He did not have the ability to sin. Became sin. For us. And thirdly, the serpent represents God's curse. Genesis 3.14 The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And Galatians 3.13 says, God hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So we're delivered from the serpent by a serpent. Jesus Christ, who is the likeness of sinful flesh, who has sinned on our behalf and was made a curse for us. Which leads fourthly and finally, Christ lifted up. They took the brazen serpent and they put it on the pole and they lifted up. And John 3.14 says, As the Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall the Son of Man be. And lifting up means the cross of Calvary. John chapter 12, verse 32. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He'll be crucified. Do we get that? Every word in the Bible was God-breathed. And in Philippians chapter 2, it doesn't say he will come and experience the death of the cross. It says he will come in even, even experience the death of the cross. Why even? Do you know the shame? Do you know the cursedness of being crucified? God will pour out his wrath on the Son on the cross. Job chapter 6 verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. 
The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of the Lord do set themselves in array against me. No one experienced that more than Jesus Christ. God's wrath is like poison. Go home tomorrow morning, watch a documentary or a YouTube clip on what it's like to experience a venomous snake biting you like a cobra. And listen to the experience of men screaming in pain as the toxins come to their neural system, as they break down the cells and they feel like they're burning inside out. Christ's humanity is finite and limited. And the power of the Almighty is infinite. And the infinite Almighty God pours out his wrath unto the serpent. Thomas Manton. Never was any child of God before Christ under so much misery as Christ himself was. His own heaven, his own father, his own Godhead hid their face and consolation from him. God's wrath pressed the weight of punishment with the full power of justice, both upon his soul and body. Those for whom he died despised him. He himself being emptied of all things that make men respected in the world and depressed lower than ever any man was as a worm to be trod upon. A snake to be trod upon. And that's Christ lifted up. But thirdly, the healing, the look of life. What happens in Numbers 21, 8 to 9? Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Jesus Christ takes that in John 3.15 Everyone believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ on that cross redeemed us. Christ on that cross is the righteousness for our justification. That one cross was Christ taking the cup of poison which we should all drink and he took it away from us and on that cross he drank it all completely. There's no more justice of God against our sins because it's satisfied by the Savior on Calvary. And now there's eternal life. You are right before God, holy before God, Adopted as sons before God. And the key to eternal life, you know God. God loves you. He sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. And when you cry, Abba, Father, you know you're in the happy land of the Trinity. You know the Father has loved you from all times. You know, the Son has loved you and given himself for you. And you know, the Spirit of God and love has entered your heart and regeneration, given you all things in Christ, will keep you to the end till you come 
to the eternal rest. When you will be with Jesus Christ lifted up for all eternity, beholding true life forevermore. And how do you receive this life? You look. You look. They look to the brazen serpent. Life. You believe on the Son of Man lifted up. Life. We get belief so confused at times. We write theological treatises. We have theological controversies. We have theological debates. But believing in Christ is simple. It is simply looking. You don't look to yourself. You don't look to your righteousness. You don't look to your look. You don't look to the degrees of repentance. You don't look only to Jesus Christ. We mentioned last week, Spurgeon can find no salvation. He was only under the law. He couldn't find rest. He couldn't find forgiveness. He couldn't find anything. And there was a snowstorm one Sabbath day. He couldn't go to the church he was desiring, but had to go to a small, primitive Methodist church. And when he goes into that church, hardly anyone's there. The preacher's not even there because he was snowed in, and a poor man was there. And he stood up to preach in Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And he says the man couldn't even pronounce his words correctly. But then Spurgeon describes the man's sermon. The text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting to the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And Spurgeon looked and was healed. Dear brother and sister in Jesus Christ, look to your Saviour. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your weaknesses. Don't look to anything except for the Son of Man lifted up. And dear friend, who don't know the Saviour, who don't know salvation, who don't know the forgiveness of sins, look unto Christ. You're a venomous snake. You're full of poison, of sin and iniquity. But he is the balm of Gilead. He has righteousness for you. He has acceptance before God. He has reconciliation with God. Look unto Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let us all in the Lord's Supper look to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, oh how we marvel at God so loving the world that thou dost give thy only begotten Son. 
And we look now on Christ high and lifted up. And we believe on him for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.